hello. Welcome to the Black Dog Being Well podcast. I'm Zasha Rosen, stepping in for Jan Orman. In this episode, we'll be hearing from author and poet Fiona Wright. Fiona was probably best known as a poet until she wrote her recent book, Small Acts of Disappearance, a collection of essays where she described her experiences of living with an eating disorder. In this episode, Fiona will be telling us about that experience and other experiences with depression and of anxiety. But she'll also explain how, although writing about mental illness came relatively late, it brought a lot of good things to her life. And one particular problem, with cheese. (laughs) I don't get offered cheese at book launches anymore because I, I wrote a lot about having an eating disorder for a long time and... It has led to this kind of wonderful and bizarre occurrence at at book launches and festivals where the caterers will be coming around and they'll offer me the cheese plate and then sort of snatch it away and go, oh, sorry, sorry, Um, as if the the mere sight of a cheese plate was going to send me into a tailspin. And it's, it's quite annoying because I love cheese. I'm Fiona Wright, a writer, probably best known for my book Small Acts of Disappearance, which is explicitly about mental illness. I've always been a reader since I was very small. I loved books and, yeah, there's all these jokes in my family about my brother and sister watching a movie together and I'd be off in my room reading a book. Or the most recent one my my dad told was about getting a new game for the Nintendo and it had two controllers and my brother would take one controller and my sister would take the other controller and I'd take the instruction manual and all three of us would be perfectly happy. Um, Yeah, I was that kid. (laughs) My parents are very practical, my siblings are very practical, my whole family is very practical. In fact, I have, I have a writer friend, a, a novelist, who once said to me, you know, Fiona, my family say I'm a very implausible person. And I love that phrase. <laughs> because I'm like, yeah, I'm an implausible person. And I think it like says a lot about the person being called implausible as well as the people doing the calling. I had an interesting time at school. I was always aware that I was a bit of an odd kid. You know, I grew up in the suburbs. I I always say the deepest, darkest suburbs. But mine was quite a conservative part of Sydney. And I really did feel like I was in playgrounds full of kids that kind of had a way to understand each other and get on with each other that was just a little bit missing from from my makeup. I I was a smart kid. I was a bookish kid. I was quite an emotional kid and none of these things were particularly common in those playgrounds. I mean, I loved being in school and I loved learning, but I I found the social part of it very hard. The social side did get easier. I mean, I I made friends um, and very strong, intense friendships, which I think is something that happens to teenagers a lot. I think I was a lot. I was a lot more insecure than I was letting on, and 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 in a way, I think all teenagers are because they're a mess of insecurities and hormones and and worries and just desperately pretending that they've got it all together. But also a lot sadder too, and I I, I don't think anybody really saw that at all. Mm. In hindsight, I, I do think it was depression. We definitely didn't have the language for it at that stage and wasn't something my family had ever really dealt with either, so they didn't really have the language for it as well. I, I, I just called it, you know, doing teen angst really well. But, you know, the more I think about it, the more that had been there for much longer than that. And 
in ways that probably were more intense than the average experience. But it's so hard to to judge that when you're in the middle of it. I sort of accidentally came to poetry in a way, but but really loved it and kind of kept that up. I started writing when I was in high school. I was very lucky that when I was in year 12, you were suddenly able to do a major project in English. And I kind of jumped on that and jumped into that subject and started writing poems. I'd never really written, well, I thought I hadn't really written poetry before, but then I'd always been writing little like silly songs and very, very, very short stories and things like that. And it was something that I kept up all through university. And there were a lot of opportunities to get things published, both in uni magazines and journals then. And I was sending things out and had some luck pretty early on with getting a few things picked up in magazines for young writers in particular. Yeah, really things didn't get properly strange until I started at university. And I was just so thrilled to get out into the real world. And everyone kept saying to me, oh, university, they're the best days of your life. And then when I got there and it was a bit sucky, I was like, well, if I'm not having the best time of my life, there must be something wrong with me. And really it was a situation. It took me an hour and a half to travel into uni every morning and and every afternoon. Sydney's a really big city with very bad public transport. So the suburb I grew up in didn't have a train station, so it was a bus and a train into uni, as well as a walk on either end. So it took about an hour and a half to get in and out each day, which meant that I didn't have as much access to some of the social life that happens at campus. Because if I didn't leave by 6pm, I actually couldn't get home. There were no more buses. Um, It did make me a very good literature student, though, because I got a lot of my reading done on the bus and the train. But I think the main problem was I'd gone from having this very close-knit group of friends, but arts degrees are very different. They're very spread out and very isolated. I really did not feel like I belonged. And in a way, I don't think I've felt like that ever in my life, right from school, the whole way up. But it's suddenly been made super clear to me when I was in university. These weren't my people. This was my first experience out of school, my first experience of the wider world. And I just thought, this sucks. I really didn't know how to deal with feeling isolated. I tried really hard to make friends, but it was it was difficult not seeing people all that often. And I think in hindsight, the way I coped was the way I'd learnt to cope at school, which was to work more and work harder because work is a really great distraction and it's one that society rewards us for. I have a very strong memories of first year uni of being so confused about what was going on and so disheartened in a one that I've been thinking about a lot lately. I'm not entirely sure why. Of a couple of days when I just came home, went into my bedroom, pulled the blind down, turned the lights off and and just lay on the bed crying. You know, and, and in hindsight, that absolutely was not right and there was absolutely something wrong, but I didn't know in that sense. I just thought I was having a hard time. You know, and that's a kind of common theme for me too, not recognising what was actually going on. I know I felt really sad and really alone and I felt like I was doing life wrong. For some reason, 
Because it felt so bad, I must be doing the wrong thing. So I tried a whole bunch of different stuff. I joined different clubs and societies and that didn't work. Um, I tried to get close to some of the people in my course and, and that didn't work. You know, I, I hung out with a bunch of kids that I found through my German class and they just made me feel, not, not on purpose, they were just like extremely charming, interesting people and I felt grey and beige beside them. So that didn't work. Um, you know, and I, and I think the other thing that happens too or that I've I've noticed with each of my illnesses is that things get bad incrementally. You know, it's a small disappointment and a small disappointment and a small adjustment after small adjustment and then, you know, something else falls away and something else falls away. But there are all these tiny little things um, and these tiny little degradations but because it happens so progressively and so piecemeal, you don't notice it getting bad, you know, or until something changes and you feel better again and you're like, God damn, <laughs> that was a horrible place that I was in. Well, you know, I think at that stage I thought I'd get through uni and then I'd get a job and that would be the thing that made things okay. I think it was that kind of deferral of... This is just a hard phase that I've got to get through and then the next one will be fine. Which in hindsight is what I'd done all through high school. This is hard. When I get to uni, it'll be fine. And then when it wasn't, it was kind of <laughs> insulting. I kept going through my degree and I kept working too hard and doing too many subjects. And when I was about 19, I got physically ill as well um, with a very rare condition that is related to stress and does worsen when my mood is, is bad. But it was a confusing thing in and of itself. It's called rumination disorder. I don't normally give its name because no one knows what it is. And in fact, the doctor who finally diagnosed me had seen five cases in 10 years. It just meant that I was unconsciously and without wanting to throwing up a lot when I ate. And it was really scary terrifying because, you know, my body was doing this thing that I had no idea what was going on. No one in my life knew what was going on. And then, you know, I came in contact with doctors and most of them were male and treated me like I was an idiot, like I was making it up. Now, what I think in hindsight happened, that condition was very much related to the mental pressure I was under. You know, it is so, so rare that it took so long to get a diagnosis I, and, I, and I dropped all that weight. I was also getting very anxious around eating because I was sick all the time. And it turns out I had all those personality traits that make someone vulnerable to disordered eating. Those things combined. Somehow at some point, my eating went completely out of control as well. Became very, very restrictive, absolutely inadequate and restrictive above and beyond the things that I needed to avoid to keep the vomiting in check. But I didn't know that was the case for years. I, I thought that the way that I was eating was only what I needed to do to manage the illness. I kind of started freelancing and, and doing some weird media jobs just as a, a kind of thing to see what I wanted to do. And I still had this idea in the back of my head that maybe journalism was a thing that I might do. So I decided a good way to either get some experience so that I'd be more employable or learn whether or not I wanted to actually pursue journalism was to do a placement and I decided to do it overseas 
And yeah, so I went to Sri Lanka and did a journalism placement there. And in many ways, it was great. I loved the country. I loved the people I met there. I had a wonderful time. I was overseas by myself for the very first time. Mood-wise, I actually wasn't doing too badly. I've read recently that that's not uncommon, especially for people like me where the depression is so tied up with anxiety that sometimes being in a completely different place can help for a little while. It's not a long-term plan. It is not sustainable because once that place becomes normal and usual to you, it's all going to arc back up again. But I think in some ways your anxiety is given proper channels when you're overseas because you actually have to, <laughs> like you're actually trying to figure out how to survive and how to get on a bus and where to go and what to do. So some of that energy is channeled into actually useful places for a little while. The Sri Lankan civil war was still on while I was there. It was about four or five years later that that came to a pretty horrific end, as I guess all wars do, really. Most of the stories I did were art stories, colour pieces. I covered a literary festival, which was fantastic fun. But, I mean, there were very real reasons for that, which was because it was a country at war with a repressive government where journalists did go missing all the time. It also felt really strange and selfish and unfair to be having trouble with hunger and food in a place where so many people were going hungry because of much bigger political and social pressures. It also turned out that it's not a good idea to travel to a country where the staples of the diet are things that you cannot eat with rumination, two of, the, two of the ingredients that I still have a lot of trouble with, uh, rice and anything kind of made on coconut milk or coconut cream. It was my first and last journalism job. I just sort of realised it's not a good environment for me and therewith abandoned my potential journalistic degree. Um, I did a lot of work for writing organisations while I was at uni and eventually through that ended up working part-time at a publishing company, working on a literary magazine. But as a part of the work I was doing out there, I was working with this group of young writers. And I think it was through a project that they were doing that I first started writing about my illness. The first thing I wrote was a piece about being in Sri Lanka and thinking about those ideas of hunger, public hunger and private hunger. And that project actually coincided. I'd just come out of my very first hospital day program which was where I'd really had to confront the reality of my illness for the first time. And we were putting it all together for a performance. Everyone had to perform their pieces. You know, I've performed a lot and I had performed a lot by that stage and, and, I, and I really like performing. But backstage that time, I felt like I was going to vomit. <laughs> it, was, it was a stage fright kind of a nausea. I'm no, I normally don't get stage fright at all, but I felt exposed is the crux of it, really, in a way that I don't normally when I'm up on stage. But then I went up and started reading and everyone went quiet. It was so quiet. There were about, I'd say about 120 people in the room. It was a theatre and it was silent and everyone was looking at me and I had this feeling that I'd, I'd never had before on stage, that I was like, I have all of these people in the palm of my hand right now. This is amazing. You know, when you get buy-in from an audience and they're with you, 
Because before that I'd been performing poetry mostly, right? And everyone's like, oh, that's nice. Poems are nice. But this time it really felt like the audience was like, something is happening. The problem was my parents were in the front row and I hadn't given them any warning about what I was going to talk about. (laughs) So at one point I looked up and there's my mum's face and she's bawling. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) After that performance, we were all kind of milling around. The theatre has this beautiful outdoor space in here and it was early summer and the frangipani were all out. And I didn't see my parents, first of all. The first people I saw were my editor, my now editor, who was my boss at the time, and his wife who runs the publishing company with him. And they both said to me, you know, that should be a book. And I was like, oh, let me think about that. But also, okay. I knew it was part of something bigger straight away. I wasn't quite sure that it was a book until that point. It was only slightly after that that I saw my parents and apologised for not warning them. I, I know they would rather I wrote fiction, my parents, and I think it's hard for anybody in your life when you're a writer if you write from your life that every now and again they pop up in your work and it's not often in ways that they expect or your interpretation of events is a bit different from the way they remember things or, you know, you remember things that they've said and they were like, that is not what I meant. I think the other thing I didn't realise was it took me four years to write the book. So by the time it came out, I'd had four years of looking at that material and sifting through it and, you know, finding that that shape for it and, and making it safe in a way. And then I like handed it to my parents and was like, hey, remember all that horrible stuff that happened? Do you want to think about it again right now? And I know like it's it's incredibly hard for parents in general to have an unwell child I think there's a particular flavour to it with a mental illness. You know, I can remember my mum asking me a couple of times, did I do something wrong? And I was like, absolutely not. This is not, this isn't a thing that happened because of the way it was brought up or, you know, things that people said or it, 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 it's such a combination of circumstances. It's funny, one of the things I didn't realise was going to happen as a result of the book and, and my family did all read it. Um, I felt like suddenly we were able to have conversations around my health and my mental health that we'd not been able to have before. It was like I'd acknowledged the elephant in the room and now we were suddenly able to talk about it. We were able to have some really honest conversations and it's made them, I think understand a little better what's going on for me on a day-to-day basis at meal tables. So when we do meet up for Sunday lunches or birthday dinners and things like that, it's, it's subtle, but they're much more understanding of what's going on for me. You know, they always try and cook something that's going to be okay for me to eat rather than just being like, oh, just what have what everybody else is having or acknowledge that I might not be 100% comfortable at the restaurant and I'll just do what I can and don't kind of say, is that all you're eating? Or why don't you try some of this, this kind of thing. That they're small, they're small changes, but I feel like everyone's on the same page now. It feels really good for me. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's normalised it for me a lot. The great thing about writing about all of this stuff was that it really did help me make sense of it and find a narrative for it because I think so much of what happens to you 
when you're sick and especially if you have experiences like I did when you kind of bounced around from doctor to doctor and they don't know what's going on and then they tell you to do this test and so you do that test and they tell you to do that test so you do that one Um, and then they suggest this hospital so you go there and you really don't have much agency at all in what happens to you and there's no way of making sense of all of these things and I think what I found was that by writing about them I really was able to come to terms with them in a way that I hadn't before and to understand exactly what it was that that had happened and get a little bit of agency back. I don't think the experience of illness makes sense, especially when you're in the thick of it. But I think what I was able to do was to figure out how that experience sat in the greater narrative of my life. A lot did change when I published the book and I really wasn't expecting that because I thought of it and I do still think of it as a very weird book. It's essays, it's not narrative. It brings together really weird and disparate things. And I think also because I'd been a poet before that and had a poetry book out and when you publish a poetry book, other poets read it and say that's very nice and that's sort of the end of it. I didn't really ever have a sense that people were going to read the book and then that happened and then the book got a lot more attention than I was expecting. It picked up two prizes and was on the shortlist for a kind of major award as well that came with a lot of publicity. And it was great. It did mean having very public conversations about mental health and my mental health in particular. But by that stage, because I'd written the book and gone through all of that kind of weird processing, I felt better equipped for that. Writing is a very positive thing for me. I don't I don't think it's therapy. Um, I think there is no substitute for therapy. It's great. I think even people who think they're 100% sane should have it. The key to getting better is early intervention. You know, I remember when I first got treatment, I just went for anxiety and I was like, I just want to fix that and not have to touch the food stuff, which of course is stupid and impossible. Um, but I, I also genuinely had this idea that it would sort itself out if I just left it, you know, and and here I am, what, 15 years later, um, (laughs) seven, eight years of therapy and a couple of hospitalizations and stuff like that. We sort of know now that early intervention is key to treatment for so many different illnesses. And, And that's absolutely something I didn't get because I didn't have the language. So I didn't get any sort of treatment until I was 26, by which stage I'd been unwell for at least seven years. At the beginning, I think when I was first figuring out what was going on, and it was great to have resources around that I could look at and read. I think I've read a lot of fact sheets in particular to try and figure out as much as I could. Some of them were very helpful as well. Some that I remember in particular, which I think were from Western Australia, but I remember looking at them and it was really basic stuff about behaviours that you might notice. And I was like, that one? that one, that one, oh, you know, this kind of process of recognition that I think is incredibly important, especially in those very early stages. What I normally say when people ask how I'm doing is that I say I'm a lot better, but I'm far from well. Because to me, that really does sum it up. I'm a lot better than I was. I don't have my health, but I've got a lot. You know, I have a really rich and fulfilling life. I have wonderful people in it. I love my work. Not many people get to say that. And I've worked really hard for all of those things, harder than people who don't struggle with ill health have to. And so they're incredibly precious to me. By the same token, I do sometimes think that like 16-year-old Fiona would be so excited 
for the adult I've become, finding out that there was a job that was a book reviewer. I mean, 16-year-old Fiona was like, holy crap. I mean, <laughs> that would be such an amazing job. Imagine people would send you books for free. And that's actually my life now. And I think that was kind of incomprehensible. You know, the, the things that I would like more of is I would like to be less anxious on a day-to-day basis, which is to say more at peace more often. That would be really nice because it sounds like it sounds like a nice rest because <laughs> being anxious is exhausting. And I would like to second guess everything less as well. I know I'm joyful at times. Like I can feel that and I can recognize that. But I also know like my baseline is a little bit lower than a healthy person's. But it's not bad. It's, it's okay. And that's okay. That was Fiona Wright talking about her experience living with and writing about mental illness. If you'd like to know more, you can read her book of essays, Small Acts of Disappearance. We'll include a link to it in the podcast notes. If there's anything in this episode you feel like you need to talk to someone about, you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or call the Eating Disorder and Body Image Support Line run by the Butterfly Foundation on one 800 And don't forget to check out the Being Well blog. You can find it by searching for Black Dog Institute Being Well. The Being Well podcast is presented by Jan Orman, music by Lee Rosevere. This episode was produced and introduced by me. I'm Sasha Rosen. Thanks for listening.